Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Growing Pains on the Unsettled Media Podcast Network, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to economic development in Atlanta, Canada. I'm Matt George. And I'm David Campbell. David, because of some tech issues, we've had several cracks at this episode, but the content is why we're here. We just finished the seventh installment of the Turning Point series. We're talking entrepreneurship with Dorendra Shukla and Jeff White. We got a lot of good stuff coming, but you were the lead facilitator for that session. So walk us through some of those big points in the opening moments of the seventh installment. It just keeps getting better every time we reboot, Matt. So let's just keep doing it and it'll get better every time. Uh, So I spent 15 minutes at the front of the session yesterday talking about a couple of things. One is uh, what might happen to entrepreneurship post-COVID-19. Will it dampen the entrepreneurial risk appetite? We know that already over 40% of our entrepreneurs were over the age of 55 before COVID-19. Will they be reluctant to start up their businesses again after COVID-19. So there's a lot of concern about particularly around local service providers, restaurants, and so on. And and will that sort of dynamism around the entrepreneurial spirit come back? I'm just as interested in the export-oriented entrepreneurs as well. Will their business come back? Will they be able to make profits? Will they be successful post-COVID-19? And of course, that will depend a lot on their industry and their context. But I think there's a lot of questions there. And then The last part of my presentation was around trends in entrepreneurship in New Brunswick going back 5, 10, 15 years just to set the table. And we learned, for example, that we have a much lower share of our younger population in entrepreneurship, particularly in export-oriented sectors like manufacturing and IT and other professional services. Uh, uh, And we also looked at female employment and we looked at uh, self-employment and we looked at employment trends over time. So Mm -hmm. we're down from the peak. I think 1996 or 1997 was sort of the peak year for the number of self-employed people uh, in the province and the number of self-employed people with employees, which is another proxy for entrepreneurship. So so we set the table with that and then we get into a great discussion with uh, with Jeff and Durendra. Yeah, we had some visuals for that presentation as well. And and for those who are only listening to the podcast version, there was a chart that showed us our self-employment levels and it peaks at 96. And there's a pretty steady gradual improvement up until 96. And then it kind of flattens out. It doesn't drastically decrease either. It kind of flattens out and bobs along. And Jeff told us an interesting fact about him joining NBTEL that very same year, ironically, did we come to a conclusion around that 96 year or is it just demographic and labor trends as we've seen them? Yeah, I don't think there was anything fundamentally going on that year that that tipped the balance. I think, as as I said yesterday, there's demographic factors there. You had a lot of young people, a lot of people sort of in their 30s starting businesses around that time. Uh, and then as we started to see the aging population start to emerge in the late 90s, early 2000s, I think that went down a bit. But also there might have been this issue of fatigue. So we had a fairly large recession in the early 90s that might have stimulated some self-employment, right, out of, out of necessity, uh, people starting businesses. And if you start to get into a situation where there's more secure public sector and private sector jobs after 96, maybe less people were thinking about entrepreneurship. So there's a number of things that could be driving that, but we know factually uh, that the numbers have been declining now for uh, about 15 years. And I want to talk about young people as well, because that was a worrying statistic in relation to the national average. 
And I know Durendra's got a lot of good ideas about getting youth involved. But first, Jeff, in that very same year, you joined one of the most intrapreneurial companies we've created in a long time, and that's NBTEL. And there's some really great stories around that. Tell us what 96 was like in joining that company and where it went from there. Well, in 96, I guess I moved to the, I, I did move to the province uh, to take a job, as I said, with a job that I wouldn't, I vowed I would never take, but um, it was for, as an accountant, I have to put this in perspective. A friend of mine at the day faxed this letter to me and said, you should get your resume in. He said, it's a brutal description. I don't think you'll like doing it, but this company is up to some really cool things. Just for context, Jeff, I was four that year. <laughs> okay, so '96. That was the Atlanta Olympics. We uh, we were the winner. We were holding the 100 meter gold medal at that time. Only because yeah. I just watched a 30 uh, some some stuff on Donovan Bailey. But when I landed, there was a culture. The company itself had a strategy. It was being led by Jerry Pond. He was then the CEO, but it had come through years of innovation, and it was branching out to new revenues. But what it really did for you said entrepreneurship. It's it got into the business of being the mothership to spin, take commercialized ideas, create a new company, send some of its staff out either on a loan or sometimes to leave and go forth and conquer. So it was a sort of an engine behind stimulating a bunch of people uh, mm-hmm. to take on new business opportunity. And, it, and we talked about it uh, yesterday a little bit in the same boat. It was providing a whole cover of mentorship because it would put boards in place. Senior manage, senior executives were uh, marrying up with young emerging executives or potential executives, I guess we would have been called at the time. Mm-hmm. Somehow we got tagged to say, okay, go take on a finance role. Um, Marcel, go take on and lead this company. Uh, Dan Dwaron, Marcel Lebrun, I'm thinking Helena Keene. You can go through a list that have followed through the last 20 years of having um, led companies and created companies, but that was the environment. And it was a, we need to be the best and most nimble, and we have to leverage the heck out of the technology platform that allows us to go global faster. And so we were given this opportunity that probably accelerated my career 10 to 15 years. It was amazing from to a traditional now, pathway. Yeah, it's amazing to see now how many companies are led by NBTEL alum or mentors in the entrepreneurship community. So many have gone on to inspire or lead some of our some of our new biggest organizations. And so that story has always fascinated me. And I know Durendra, you as well have had some experience with Nortel. How does that for a young person who hasn't heard the story, where does Nortel come in in that, in that timeline? So I, I came to, uh, you know, uh, I came to Canada when I was uh, 12 years old. Uh, and at that time, uh, fell in, fell in love with the country and, in a way, when I was studying in England, my undergrad and grad, I said, how do I find an opportunity to end up in Canada? And I remember uh, in, in, uh, in 1998, I decided that, uh, look, I'll, I'll go to Canada after grad school and see what happens. I landed on a Sunday. And my friend was working at Nortel, so he did my resume up. So we, since we had went, gone to school together, we had gone, basically our resume was quite similar. I applied uh, on, on that day, I applied to Nortel for several different divi- divisions. On Wednesday, I had a job offer. Uh, and Nortel said, we will make you an offer, you never go back. And I have to say, the way Nortel inspired young people to come to Canada 
young people to stay in Canada, the talent development, the leadership development, the reason even John Chambers at Cisco, when, when they opened offices in Ottawa, John Chambers' single reason for opening offices uh, and many tech companies, you see Ericsson, Nokia, all these companies, Huawei, all of them opening offices in Ottawa, primarily because they loved the talent development that was taking place at Nortel. Uh, and unfortunately, we have not been able to create, uh, figure out to fill that gap since. Mm-hmm. But what it did for me was gave me an opportunity to create a work on brand new products launching out of uh, Nortel. Coming out, taking it to market, experimenting, putting it in the hands of customers and having fun with that whole journey. Because now I felt this company really got it. We, they really appreciated young people. They really wanted uh, you know, to give the leadership skills and really got us out and working with customers, skunk works and all of those things. So that's how I ended up at, at, at Nortel in Canada. Mm-hmm. And when they made that offer to me saying that we will make you an offer that you don't go back to the UK, guess what? I've been here in Canada since 1998. Mm-hmm. And then I'm so proud to call Canada home. And, and the opportunities that were given to me at that time in that organization is the same community and culture I am desperately trying to create right now. Because I remember after the Nortel's collapse in 2009, going back to that campus and basically in tears because that whole campus that had 30,000 people working there, empty. Hmm. The inspiration is missing. And so how do we really create that community and culture that drives and that sucks in young people, industry, government, all become part of this movement and create those opportunities for the young people? We have to invest in the young people. Just the way Canada took a risk on me and kept me here since 1998, how do we do that to the young people? Just as an aside, the um, number of engineers and computer science uh, folks in the workforce in the Ottawa area never really recovered. Its growth rate was well below other urban centers across the country after the closure of Nortel. So it's interesting that did not happen with BlackBerry and Waterloo. And it didn't really happen with with NBTEL because, of course, all these new companies around Mariner came up uh, through the system. But in Ottawa, it never really recovered. And I think maybe it was an anomaly to have Nortel in a government town. I'm not sure. Not sure what happened there. I, I think the other thing to point out is suddenly so many other companies had o- opened shop to just simply pick up the talent. Right. Just pick it up. But you know what happens is if you pick up the talent, you pick up the IP, all of that actually moves to somewhere else. I, I, most people don't talk about that. But. R&D and the amount of impact Nortel had in the nation was phenomenal, inspired so many people. And the other thing about Nortel was that the young startups that were around Nortel, it gave them an opportunity to get mentorship, sales channels into countries across the world. 
So that is the advantage of having large companies that really buy into entrepreneurship, really buy in and support. So it's critical that when we took a look at entrepreneurship, mentorship is, is critical, funding is critical, but the channels to market and those relationships, and you know those sales and, and all those things are all dependent on relationships. If you have a giant mammoth company like Nortel, delivering that sales compo- component to, to companies, it's, it's a path to success that is missing right now. Let's stay on let's stay on Waterloo for a minute in the Waterloo story because this is one of my all-time favorites and I don't know if it's a good analogy or not and I think the three of you will have some really good insight into whether it is or not. I had the pleasure of spending some time at the Evolve 1 building at the University of Waterloo with Paul from the university and the Accelerator Center and they told the story of going from dilapidated urban core which sounded to me honestly a lot like what St. John formerly has been evolves into this place that has this um, success story with BlackBerry and then BlackBerry collapses and all of a sudden there's all of this tech talent on the market and they start companies or join companies in the area or the GTA in general. And then now when you go there, fast forward, I was walking around by myself with my headphones in and all I saw was people my age coming to and fro from there's the Shopify HQ, there's Google HQ, there's the Evolve 1 and the platform for Evolve 2. It really honestly inspired me. And there was no sense of scarcity whatsoever. It was a total build culture. Everybody I had met. Is anything in that story a good lesson for us or is it just too different? So if I chime in about, if I look at Waterloo and and the story around Waterloo, first thing you have to realize is firstly, the role of the university is fundamental. The role of the university, getting students to be experimenting, a large corporate partner like uh, BlackBerry Rim being involved. And also note that there was this mammoth other institution, the University of Toronto, right there. Right. So you can think about this large institution, Toronto. And if you look at Waterloo, you think it's, it's one of those areas you don't really expect to do well. For all the reasons, it, it, was, it was farm country, it was dairy products, it was leather, there was a market there. I, when I, there was early times when I visited, it had actually it had a little bit of a smell to it that, you know, you were like, you, you realize you're in a farm, basically. But a couple of people got together the university's ability to be slightly different, connect with their students to companies and organizations across the across the country and internationally bring those relationships back to the institution help create these 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 young people that had a lot of appetite for risk and if you look at the programs and policies that were put in place and the infrastructure that was set up for students at very early stages to start experimenting and start doing these interesting things while they were at university, while they were at res, and then having Rim and BlackBerry suddenly, uh, you know, crash, in a way, it's still there, it's now doing quite well, created this mix of people with experience, knowledge, know-how, and now young people that were all able to come together and do something quite novel and quite exciting 
Unfortunately, if you look at Ottawa, that did not happen. The similar type of culture did not happen in Ottawa. And there are many, and, and many, th- many people will argue that it's because these other companies had opened up. You know, you had giants like Terry Matthews uh, there that, you know, so whether that were, you could argue were pro, con, all of those elements. But basically, these large companies came in and just sucked up all the talent. And that opportunity to really go in and do something novel and new because you were a tinkerer was not something that happened in Ottawa. Mm. So as if we look at a similar story in New Brunswick, as NBTEL disappeared, it created huge amount of opportunities for people that left NBTEL and young people around in our community because they acted as mentors. They act, They were able to open up their Rolodexes, if people nowadays know about Rolodexes, and begin to help young people or themselves and their community to go and experiment and try entrepreneurship. So if you look at the story of Waterloo and you look at that and say, if, in a way, if they can do it in that setting, why can't we do it in our setting? The drive or the flight from Waterloo to Toronto is as bad as from here to, to Toronto, right? Like, so, so we are connected. We have a lot of connection points. And we need to just simply find a way to just move that agenda forward in an exciting way. And Paul did mention in regards to access to capital, and I want to mix you in here, Jeff. He said they did $100 million in investment from student-led companies from the university in the last 10 years. That's an average of $10 million a year. So there's clearly also access to money. And I know that's something, Jeff, that you and your organization works on a lot. Yeah, then no question. I, I, in the podcast, I talked about the three pillars of, of what I think are important to get a, a high-growth industry moving, uh, you know, capital, talent, and customers. And I think it's in uh, it's in that order. And the reason is you, you were, we have a talent being developed, but they, to, to maintain them, they need some fuel to stick around and start to, to, to drive the culture. And then that will lead to customers because typically your talent development is uh, a lot of it's very technical. You know, we talk, we'll talk a little bit of sales. So you're talking about product development, evolution, market fit, that we have the accelerators all happening, but you need fuel to put in those uh, businesses. Uh, because in my experience, you know, the growth rate of a company uh, is really influenced by how much capital. When I'm talking about capital, I'm talking about ownership. You're sharing the ownership. It's equity. You know, you're sh- selling shares in a private company to another person. And you're that in and of itself is a cultural thing to think about because it's not single owner. If you're going to be a high growth tech company, you have multiple owners and multiple um, you have accountability now to a broader group than just yourself. So that's in and of itself as part of the culture of capital. But having a vibrant uh, private venture back venture capital type um, market is going to be very very important to driving the growth rate as we move forward. And when the you know you, you commented they about a hundred million into venture back companies over ten years is that what over ten said? years from from student yeah. started company so, university. So uh, roughly, I would say NBIF has invested around uh, fifty million over the last fifteen years. We've had some some great exits some shut down some companies. We've got a return that's about 5% over that period, 5, 5.1 adjusted. But about 60%, 70% of our funding goes to, I'm going to say student, but university connected uh, technologies. 
right? That's a good the, way to put it. Yeah, university. right. So it's not necessarily students, but it could be professor led. It could be coming out of that tech engine. Like that's where we we see a lot. And then you have the um, uh, later stage entrepreneur, thirty nine forty, who may have come the technologies coming out of the corporate world. You know, out of out of I'll call it just some other discovery that's going. But a lot of it is being focused on uh, university based. Uh, research because typically in the STEM field, that's where you're trying to create a competitive advantage around intellectual property. And so, so that's a part of it because we don't build buildings. We don't build typically machines and factories and get debt. We're building a intellectual property that's transferable from there. Dave, so that's where you wanted to get involved on the Waterloo front. No, I mean, it's a great example. I mean, we all have our Waterloo stories. I actually helped set up the Waterloo Region Economic Development uh, Organization a few years ago. I got a chance to really understand what's going on up there. There were more startups in the incubator there in Waterloo, I think they were arguing, than the rest of the country combined, which was kind of interesting. And the other thing was they had more, when I was on the Experiential Learning Task Force, there were, the University of Waterloo, one university had more students in experiential learning than all of the universities in the Maritimes combined, including Dalhousie. So that's another thing, right? Just about every technology, engineering, computer science, mathematics student at Waterloo is involved in experiential learning. They actually work for companies while they're studying. And I think that's another uh, great advantage to Waterloo. But I think it's a, it just underscores the importance of universities uh, as a source of talent for entrepreneurship. And we've been discussing that. We need to figure out what the other sources are, but certainly as a conduit for, for entrepreneurs, universities are right there for sure. Yeah, Dorendra, what is the role of the university? Because if we look at the youth numbers, specifically on David's, uh, David's charts, we're 32% behind the national average in youth self-employment. And I know you think a lot about what the role of the university is in inspiring young people to be taking a risk and starting companies. So it's interesting that you talk about Waterloo. So one, one thing about Waterloo is that if students are going out there and, and experiential learning, they're coming back with a way to a little bit of lightening their, uh, their student debt. So if we are going to focus and give students an opportunity for, to really consider entrepreneurship, there are a couple of elements we need to be thinking about is how can we make sure that we address the student loan component? That is a heavy burden on students. How do we put policies and in place for, for be, to get students to try entrepreneurship? You it was 100% of my motivation to join JDI right out of university was my debt burden. Right. 100%. And, and you're not, you, you, you're not uh, at, at an extreme. That is the core population. That is most of the students are saying, I can't do this because of this debt. So how can we figure that element out? How can we, the students would love to do entrepreneurship. I'm telling you, we could get most of the students trying to do entrepreneurship with very little, uh, really a lot of money invested, we can just give minimum wages and things like that, get experimenting, getting to do, getting them to do something that they really believe in. And they will work day and night because of how passionate they are and how driven they are. But we need to address some of those components as a way to really spearhead and then bring in the entire community as a mentorship vehicle. 
And and if you look at our 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 master's program, for example, uh, or in technology management or entrepreneurship, we have far more people interested in applying and getting in than we can absorb. If you look at our summer institute, far more people internationally and nationally and locally interested than we can actually support. And the same thing with energy or energy adventure. So if you if we seriously wanted to change that culture, that culture can be changed in three to five years drastically if that is what we wanted. If we wanted a culture that believes in innovation and entrepreneurship, we want to sustain that, we want to attract talent here, retain talent, we need to figure out how what we can do with immigration, startup visas. We talked about this. So if we want to really do that and do it in a serious way, and emerge as as our New Brunswick way of doing things, Atlantic Canadian way of doing things as a new model, uh, it, it can be done. And, and what we've been doing in the TME program is building on to some of the, the people that were involved and chairs that were involved. And we are now at a sweet point where we work with many stakeholders. We can bring the talent in from around the world to create magic here and call this place home. We have the vehicle to do that. But one of the challenges, and Jeff raised it yesterday, is many of our successful startup companies were started by people in their 30s that had already been in a company environment like MBTEL, had built an expertise, you know, developed their entrepreneurial ideas while in a big firm and not in university. Yeah. So I think that that's why I wouldn't put all my bags and my eggs in the university basket, I'd put a lot of them in, and I'd actually like to get more mature students into the TME program in the summer suit, so yeah. on. Yeah. But I think Jeff's on to something that a lot of entrepreneurs get a start in industry, whether it's Nortel or MBTEL, and they come up, they get really good at something, and then they, they're frustrated inside the firm, and they take that idea out and start a firm when they leave the big firm. So if we don't have those big firms, or if those big firms aren't catalyzing these entrepreneurs... It's a barrier in our in our entrepreneurial ecosystem. Well, how do we turn corporates? That's why I say talk about how do we tur- turn corporations also into an entrepreneurial. How do we take what we're doing in the university and turn it put it in the corporate setting, right? Yeah. So that young people again, how do corporations begin to build that culture of innovation and entrepreneurship within themselves, so that even when students. So it's not saying that every single student needs to do a startup right off the bat. Even when uh, companies recruit these students, that entrepreneurial culture is going to help them and going to help them thrive. But how do we embed some of this culture within that community to create new growth, new products, new services, new lines of business? And how do we begin to do that at the same time? So it's not, not focus on growth or companies. But we need to, if we're, our focus is how do we keep uh, retain young people and that experience quickly as they try and experiment and do amazing things, how do we keep them? How do we support them? So some example I, uh, from the TME program is if you look at Qumran, and I, I talked about this before, you look at Qumran and the support that Jerry Pond specifically gave came in and said, I'm going to support. Uh, and, and if you look at the recent group that we're looking at, we look at Potential Motors. 
the the group from Radiant Six and 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 Q1 coming in and working with with that group of young people, mentoring, coaching, and giving direction. Phenomenal. So not saying that uh, not saying that there's just one cookie cut plan that we do. We need to address it at multiple fronts, but create a culture within within our community and within our organizations that really believes that there are opportunities for all and there's a space for all. So entrepreneurship is not for just this group of people right here. It's an opportunity for all of us to roll up our sleeves and find a way to get involved and be the change makers mm-hmm. in that cultural change. Jeff, do you want to jump in on that? Yeah, I do. So a couple things. So I, just a, th- a thought that comes to mind. I often, I was mentored in this, I guess, and I use this as a framework. So when we, the young first-time entrepreneurs, so you often have the title, but not necessarily the position yet. So so you are the founding CEO, but you need an awful lot of help. I need a lot of help to do my job, right? So, so you have the title, but you don't re- you don't have the position yet because you can't you don't have the training wheels off. So we need that to be happening um, to go along. You know, so that's an important one because sometimes people get thought and think, "Oh, I've made it. I'm now called the CEO." Well, that's that's just a starting point. That's that's a tough spot to be. You're probably Matt. That's a lonely spot. Many of us here know when you look around and say, "Okay, who's making the call?" But um, so that's that's an important part of the mentorship program. I still think we do need the 38 to 40 year olds to come out with that experience so that they come out without needing for the training wheels or whatever analogy you want to use as long. And companies do that by increasing uh, corporates could do it by increasing R&D spend. That's typically if you look at what's driving that. There's someone that has a, a large corporate has an R&D program that is innovative. That means that they're looking to do things on their own and not necessarily just always go to the market with an RFP for what's the best one out there today. Uh, mm-hmm. They take that on and then that stimulates different models of corporate innovation, which could be you spin it out into a company, you leave it inside, you partner. And uh, we're seeing some signs of that now coming up, but we could, you, you, you see a lot of that um, embedded in an innovation strategy, right? A, a global or sorry, a, a larger strategy around what does innovation do in our economy? And, you know, David, you can innovation stand as a sector instead of being buried as an enabler and innovation about stimulating, we have a target to drive new business formation and new export uh, ideas. And is could be a part of a growth part of our economy to bolt on to a, a base that's already there. That's typically what you see. Going back to the Waterloo, there was a strategy put in place by universities, economic development agencies, governments, domestic corporates that brought in international corporates to drive the, say, innovation. And they you can use defining of new business formation or some use uh, patents and others becomes embedded in terms of what your, your goals and targets are. Yeah, Jeff, what you're talking about, and I don't think we should skip over this because I think New Brunswick is actually really good at this. You're talking about the difference between conviction and credibility. It was really easy for me to put founder and CEO in my Gmail header, but it's my Friday morning breakfast with Dan that's going to take me to the next level. And New Brunswick's really good at that. I haven't had the door closed in my face yet. And it it makes me believe in the conviction part, I could have all the conviction in the world as as a new entrepreneur, but that credibility of being engaged with folks like you guys is what takes it to the next level. So when you see potential motors do a pretty significant round 
which you told me was pre-COVID, but then you see Marcel getting involved. In my mind, when I read that, I think, okay, Potential Motors is going to the next level because that's somebody that I know who has that credibility, brings his talents to the conviction of a new team. So it's, I think New Brunswick's really good at that. But also worthwhile pointing out that uh, uh, Marcel is very, very actively involved in our, our TME program. Mentors international students, uh, mentors all early stage companies. Uh, so it's not that oh I've I'm now with Potential Motors and that, that you know that he is spending his time with new immigrants. He's spending his time uh, you know with uh, co-teachers with me, uh, and uh, so it just it's that's important. I think so much if we find a platform. And we need to make sure everyone knows that they can get integrated. They can be part of this, this, this movement about change and they can make a positive contribution. That's all we want is that people can be part of it. It's not about only about, yeah, money is important, but people have connections. People have uh, an ability to mentor people about project management, you know, all of those elements that people, young people might, might be struggling with. But us being involved, you begin to ideate and come up with new ways to address and find solutions. Because we are, one thing about New Brunswick and Atlantic Canada is that we are very resourceful and humble and kind and very connected and very down to earth. So as a result, that's the world of tinkering. That is the world of being creative because you are acting in a place where, the, where where resources are short. So if that's the case, this is the perfect climate to make exciting things happen. Can I, Matt, can I build on this? Because we've been talking a lot about startups, yeah. right? And our, 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 our panel was talking about these scale-up growth companies, right? We started, we started. So let's not lose sight that we talk a lot about startups because that's your base. You need a bunch of you need a lot of activity in there because there's a there's a pass. There's a success fail rate that's implicit. 50, 60 percent will fail. But but what happens is you build you build talent along the way. You learn. I learned. People learn on that process. But we do need also have to with the target of scale ups. And I mean, scale of, you know, 100 million, 200 million like global relevant brands to be built out of the region to drive back to the conviction, the credibility factor. So conviction, if you want credibility out, the success breeds success. The tech venture world often leads to exits because of time based in the capital markets. There's a, there's a time element that's implicit in the structures. If you have a mortgage, you have to pay it back in a certain period of time. It's, you know, cause of debt, there's a payment schedule. And venture capital has a payment schedule with it as well. It's just, it's, it's a one-time payment. So they let you use it. So we need to be thinking and strategically uh, endorsing the ability to create global companies. And that in our world, with your own ventures, you need to get to public markets or you need to get a growth rate that's strong enough to support that you can, uh, technical term is recapitalize, but take your venture capital provide them with the return they leave. There are other capital providers that will step in for a longer term with you. But I think the end, the goal of this is really to get to that, to get multiples. We, you know, what are we now? Almost 10 years ago, right? Q1 and Radiant 6, both on trajectories. We're global brands relevant. We're on trajectories to potentially become those independents. Capital came along and said, it's time. I need my money back. 
um, I'm oversimplifying it, but that was one of the triggers along the way. So we need to think, we need to be thinking about scaled global. And if we, I'm sitting here in, in Knowledge Park, I see Salesforce uh, logo across the street. Well, that was Radiant 6, right? That's what that logo, why that's there. It was done and we lose sight up. So we need to get, go down that path. HQ-based, uh, Atlantic Canadian, if you want to use that model, uh, New Brunswick-based, uh, and we'll be using resources from around our region and around the country to do that. But we need to get some HQs back here, and that's going to take, you know, a big, a big bold, um, I say vision, but conviction to go there. I felt all the I felt all the support in the world in starting a technology-based company. Are we less good at the scale portion of that growth, Jeff? And Durendra, go ahead. Let's let's mix everybody in. Go, David. You were the first. I saw you moving. Uh, I went first. No, I mean, I think actually, if you look at the data, we, we have. If you if you look at us relative to size, we are doing reasonably well at scaling firms just in the data. I mean, there's obviously we could do a lot more, and we should do a lot more. But we do have a few that sort of emerge as with twenty staff, forty staff, fifty staff, and so on. But I think, as Jeff mentioned yesterday, there's there's a broad variety of issues here. One is around public companies going public, growing your company through that that capital vehicle. We don't see any of that in New Brunswick. Uh, the other thing, when I was in government, I tried to get government interested in some sort of a tax credit or some sort of a program to support acquisitions. Uh, from here. So instead of being us, our firms being acquired by firms out there, the, our firms would are actually start doing the acquiring here. So, so there's something about that emerging acquisitions, you know, growing by taking over other companies. So I, I think we haven't really thought through. And, and that's the challenge of Jeff is to say, if you want 50 or 30 or 20 or 10, pick your number, uh, firms that get up into the 50 million or hundred million dollar a year range, then what's the pathway to get there? And I can tell you, it's almost never bootstrapping. It's almost never sort of organic growth with almost no capital, just, you know, taking on new revenue and trying to work your way there. That's almost impossible. You either grow by acquisition or merger, you grow by a massive capital infusion that enables you to hire an international sales force or whatever. Uh, but it's not going to be bootstrapped. So those kind of issues I think are fundamental when we talk about scale up. Guys, I want to get into, unless Jeff or Durendra, you had something to add there. I just wanted to say, you, you know, when we, when we look, look at scale ups, you know, recently we partnered with uh, Dan Eisenberg and uh, out of Babson. Uh, and uh, the focus of that program was primarily sales and uh, customer development, capacity building and cash. So those were the pillars of that conversation, and those were primarily all for uh, scale-up companies that were already uh, looking for new growth. New, so the, this this can only happen if we scale-ups can happen if we if we're able to partner strategically with enablers that help help us get access to more customers, more resources. And that becomes critical. We, we can't do it alone. Uh, and, and how do we find the like-minded people to be on our side? So we partnered with MIT on a, on a mentorship model. We partnered with George Washington on IP commercialization. So we partnered with Dan Eisenberg and his group uh, out of 
uh, Babson on, on, on a sales uh, scalarator program. So what I'm trying to say is that we have a unique ability to partner with people because we have a different attitude. People want to work with us. Mm-hmm. Durendra, I just build on that. That's one element that would that that's the part of I think we're good at our long game, like our long game of building the infrastructure. I would add, we if we bring some urgency to it, that's part of it. To say the M and A, the others say we need to like hit it harder, and stronger, and and faster because that that's important. I'm not saying it's not there. We got to build in this culture of we got to get there faster and stronger and a bit more aggressive. Yep, um, guys, let's go to the audience. We got to, we have a lot to accomplish and not a lot of time to do it. And the audience is a big part of why we're here. We want to know what they're thinking. And the first one is to you, David, from a David. Hi, David. Thanks for listening. How does NB compare to other similar provinces, i.e., Manitoba? I didn't realize we were so similar. So it, it's a, it's fair to say the large urban centers do better when it comes to technology startups and scale ups. Uh, that's not to say there's not examples in small jurisdictions. Charlottetown's bioscience cluster has close to 60 firms in it, private sector firms. So it, this can happen in smaller jurisdictions, but in, in general, the larger ones do better. So Winnipeg actually has some interesting uh, startup firms, a little bit of a culture there. But I would say in general, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, New Brunswick, they're on a pretty similar path in terms of trying to figure out how they compete with the largest urban centers, uh, both in terms of public policy and, and talent pipelines and, and ca- access to capital. It's always, there's always more in Montreal and Toronto uh, compared to smaller places like New Brunswick and Manitoba. Thank you, David. This one is for Durendra from Ian. Hi, Ian. When you speak of the long game, Durendra, are we having more luck with more economy of effort between government agencies, academia, and groups like NBIF? I, I think that, that that's a great point. I think uh, one of the big successes that we are seeing is that you, it has to be a collaborative effort. Uh, if you look at Energia, Energia Ventures, the partnership we have with NBIF, the partnership we have with the federal government, the provincial government, and we've partnered with a, a global accelerator network that shares their that uh, their experiences and what's happening around the world around acceleration. So, so all of this can only happen when you have deep partnership where people understand uh, what you're trying to do, what the vision is, what is exciting, and, and focus on the same goal of creating real, genuine impact and understanding that it's a risky process. It's a risky process. So the more partners you have, not only do you share the risk, but the greater the possibility of success. Mm-hmm. Certainly. Good answer. This one's to you, Jeff, again from David. Hi, David. How can we get local organizations to be among the first adopters of our innovation companies, i.e. Cognitive Spark Adoption in New Brunswick? Great question. Great question. Uh, Lots of efforts being put against that model. Um, I think it's two-sided. It's a two-sided market. I think we need our younger companies to get a little bit more educated on how do you sell We, you know, to, to these large organizations. They have processes and procurement. There's a procurement science out there that companies adopt <laughs> uh, to get the best value. So 
a little bit more knowledge around that because sometimes a, an early stage company might have naivety around, is there, you know, question, is there competitors? So I don't, some will say no. So I think we need to do some work, those companies learning how to engage. And then culturally, we need to think about buy local. I mean, you know, we've, we need to think of that as a, a embedded part of our procurement process, which might contradict some of the science that you have out there and think about that might mean in introducing uh, more risk into your process, but there's ways to manage that so that you don't have to implode your whole organization if you're going to buy product that's in the development stage versus developed. So I think it's two-sided, um, but we do need purposeful intention to look in the backyard first or as equal and um, and maybe even think about giving them some advantages, you know, some economic or other advantages to say, look, help help burden some of this risk for me. And I think there are programs out there today to do that, but get really purposeful about it and um, embrace that it is a benefit to the economy and to the, to the purchaser. Mm-hmm. This one's from Michael. Back to you, David. Hi, Michael. Thanks for listening. In your opinion, is there a need to expand the notion of entrepreneurship to move beyond technology? What I'm driving at is whether we are making the idea of entrepreneurship something unattainable by a large proportion of the risk moderate young people who would otherwise strive to be entrepreneurs? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So we do want to create an entrepreneurial climate. If you think of a program like Junior Achievement, which tries to do that in the school system, it's basically trying to create entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial thinking no matter what you do in life. Even if, as Durander said earlier, you go into a corporation, you still bring these entrepreneurial skills into that corporation. So I think we need to create a culture of entrepreneurship, and that applies to the you know coffee shops in Sussex and and you know forestry firms in Nigawak, and that goes well beyond technology. We're talking about technology uh, and companies here, and, and because we have two experts in Jeff White and Drender Shukla, but more broadly, you know it, it, you know entrepreneurship is as I said in my opening remarks yesterday. It's about all sectors of the economy. If you have whole sectors of the economy that are dominated by one or two large firms, unless you're talking about an airline or very capital intensive industries, you want a good mix of small firms, large firms, international firms. You want a a mix of firms creating a good competitive environment in local communities. And that's where these small entrepreneurs come in. And then eventually, uh, you know, they grow and some of them grow and, and become national and international players as well. I, I like to say there's, you know, Hakeem Optical in every town across the country. Well, there was a, an original Hakeem and he set up one optical store and now he's got a national chain. So even in retail, you can be talking about scale up and growing if you have that ambition of growing a national or international firm. This one's from Matthew. We're going to start with Jeff, but we also want to render on this one. What are the panelists' thoughts on the notion of entrepreneurial leave of absences where employers provide employees a period of time away without pay to pursue a new venture opportunity but are guaranteed their position at that time's conclusion if the venture doesn't pan out? Starting with you, Jeff, and then to Durendra. Oh, I think it's it's one it's one element that you could build into a whole innovation strategy for inside your organization. You could see that being a Maybe it's a problem or an opportunity that the organization wants to work on and you work with an individual, say, if you want to spin out and do that, go for it and you can commercialize it as long as I can use it and help fill the the uh, parent company's um, role. 
I've seen where people will do paid leave of absence. You know, in the public sector, we have those. We have in the research community, you know, paid sabbaticals. Um, so corporations should look to that model. All has to work economical. And how do you define that there is a benefit back to the core uh, company is typically what is created. And sometimes you might spin out a company and do that. But if there's a benefit back to the parent in that, I think it's uh, it will be a, a great in sign and indicator because those are entrepreneurs could then uh, their support systems to help them uh, on that journey. Yeah, I know big organizations like Google do this in a different way. They build in what's called playtime. So about 15% of your time paid Correct. spent innovating and working on the overarching goals of the organization, the, the nuts they haven't cracked yet. Durendra, what do you think? So in in uh, our small uh, small startup, Grey Wolf, that is looking at uh, anti-money laundering and, and uh, human trafficking and all of that, we have a policy where we give uh, employees an opportunity to try new things. And it might become something new or no novel, but we are we allow them an opportunity to take risks. Uh, and uh, it might be successful, might not be successful, but so-called playtime is still fun and it could have huge Im impact on, on the business moving forward. And that has done, uh, it still has uh, time to play, uh, you know, it'll, it'll play itself out. But at Nortel, uh, what, what was interesting and similarly at Cisco, what would happen is people were guaranteed those jobs. You go and experiment and the company could act as as a vehicle that provided you the, the, the channel partnerships. And they had venture, uh, corporate venture capital arms that would actually invest in those companies and take e possible equity uh, and also create a facility for them to prototype. And, and, and so all those things are, 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 were happening, can happen, and should be happening. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think companies need to look at that and that they can only look at it if they build that culture internally about uh, entrepreneurship. They can only begin to look at those uh, those ideas. Like Jeff said, when those people are actually solving problems from a company, they are actually coming out and solving a similar problem to what they are encountering at work. So they could there could be natural mutual benefits coming out together rather than thou shall not support this person maybe supporting that person could have huge implications not only on your top line but bottom line all those elements can can really play out yep thank you audience for your questions we we love engaging with you by name thank you jeff derendra and david for answering those i'm going to introduce the results of the poll but we're not going to expand on it thank you to our question master herb emery the question was, the best way for New Brunswick to develop entrepreneurial talent and export-oriented businesses is, and you had to decide between pushing entrepreneurs with things like grants and loans to pulling entrepreneurs by rewarding success with a competitive tax system, etc. 49% of you think we should push, 43% think we should pull, which is an interesting, there was a small minority on, on answer three, but that's interesting, a pretty good split. On that, we are going to get now into the best part of the show, in my opinion, that's segments and rapid fire. David, I'm very sorry. You actually don't get to play, but we hear your voice weekly. Uh, so we're going to stick with Jeff and Dorendra, who are going to go through overrated, underrated, and some rapid fire questions that you've all come to expect. Jeff, we're going to put you on the docket first. I think you understand the game. If my comment is overrated, man, that's not a great idea. If it's underrated, yeah, we need to put more eggs in that basket. 
Okay, you ready? I'm good. Okay. Jeff, overrated, underrated. Betting on the jockey instead of the horse. Underrated. Underrated in the world of yes, startup scale up. You got to bet on your team. You're going to have so many pivots and changes coming at you. Um, the idea is one part, especially at the startup phase. But what's the ability for that jockey or that team to pivot, modify, see around the corner? Uh, scale up, you might get, as you get to scale and bigger, you might change that. But at startup, it's, it's about the jockey. I saw as of this morning, Tesla is now the most valuable car company on the planet. And where they didn't meet those, their sales targets for the first few years, seems like a pretty bad idea to bet against Mr. Musk. And so that yeah. was the inspiration of that question. What was, is, or could be a New Brunswick turning point as it relates to entrepreneurship? Well, I would say in my career, I think what, what the, you know, you drop a pedal, pebble, it was um, when Jerry Pong got retired from mm -hmm. a, uh, Alliant, hmm. he took it on, his determination went against entrepreneurship. And I think if you go back, that energy that was put in and shared amongst it caused a whole ripple effect. And we probably need another bunch of people to do the same thing now. And hopefully that'll happen. Mm -hmm. What is one thing New Brunswick needs to unlearn? Uh, celebrate the process, not just the result. Uh, if you want to become an expert at something, people always say the process is what's really important and how you get there. And if you have a good, solid process with consistent persistence, then you will see the result. But if you skip that, you won't see the you won't you won't achieve success. Thanks, Jeff. You've been a good sport. Durandra, are you ready? I'm ready. Overrated, underrated. Starting a business with the stated intention of making an exit. Uh, I think that is uh, overrated. Uh, you know, most people that start a business, they are really passionate about what they're doing. It's not just, uh, oh, I, I, I like this idea and I think uh, it'll be a good exit. They are in it for the long game. But at, through their journey, there are many stakeholders, there are many things that they need to balance. As a result, the exit, exit given particular, you know, particularly when you're talking about uh, current economic conditions and scenarios, mm -hmm. they have to exit. And you can't, most people end up blaming the founders or saying, you know, that was not a good idea. What if you could have? There's so many factors that come into play. Investors mm -hmm. are looking for their return. Uh, the, the founders uh, might not be able to get the talent, might not be able to, uh, you know, scale at the, uh, the expectation. So it, many factors that come into play for, for companies yeah. to exit. And like Jeff said, celebrate the process. We put that exact same overrated, underrated to our mutual friend, Marcel, and he agrees with you. That is not the stated intention of a business. What was, is, or could be a New Brunswick turning point as it relates to entrepreneurship? I think the turning point is, is right now. I think we have the right sense from the, the, the young people, the people that are graduating from, uh, uh, from universities and colleges and uh, educational institutions, the partnership between, uh, between funding organizations, government organizations. I think if there was ever the right time to do something phenomenal, that can change our trajectory for for the next 25 years, it's now. 
and we've talked about this. If you look at the history of Apple, many years in, in, in their life cycle, they struggle. But where they are right now was a 25-year in the making. And even if you look at Waterloo, as you what you started as a first, it didn't happen in three years or four years. It was really thought out, well-planned, and that planning needs to happen right now. What is one thing New Brunswick needs to unlearn? One thing that New Brunswick needs to unlearn is I think uh, it's it's one amazing place. Uh, like my wife says, New Brunswick is a place if you want to leave, don't drink the water here. And it is a magical place. And I think more people need to go and see the rest of the world to see come back and look at it is a phenomenal place, and I am—I consider myself to be so fortunate, so lucky, and so blessed to be doing what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And it would—I would not be where I am with, if it wasn't for the supportive and an amazing community and culture that we have. Durendra Shukla, Jeff White, David Campbell. This has been the seventh installment of Turning Point. You've been very generous with your time, audience. Thank you very much for engaging with us. Thanks again to our question master. Herb Emery will be back next Tuesday with the final episode that came quick, the final episode of Turning Point. Thank you very much, guys. We'll see you next week. Thanks, you. Thank you.